Heavenly Father, um, thank you that we get to come before you this morning. Thank you that this uh, gathering so joyfully and clearly proclaims your name, Lord. I pray that you would be with me as I humbly try to present your word. Lord, would you speak through me? Would the truths of this passage be really clear, more clear than I could ever hope to make them, Father? And as uh, our, our dear Pastor Ed regularly prays, Lord, would the work of your spirit please complete the words that I am about to say? We pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, imagine with me for a moment, okay? It's gonna be a little bit of a stretch here, but just go with me. Imagine for a moment that you are on trial for a crime, okay? Imagine you're on trial for a crime. Uh, the verdict is in, you're in the courtroom, your family is behind you showing support, but you're nervous because you know the implications of this. The judge unseals the ruling, he again reads the counts against you, and then announces the jury's decision. It's not good. You are guilty on all counts. And the sentence is life in prison without the chance of parole. Now, you've tried to prepare yourself for this, but there's really no way you can prepare yourself for that. You've tried to arrange things at home. You've said your last goodbyes. You've hugged your family and friends for the last time. You've probably enjoyed your favorite restaurant one more time, maybe that hike that you love. Everything is for the last time. And the weight of this is heavy. There's probably a deep sadness that marks your life leading up to this, everything kind of pointing to this moment. And now your fears have been confirmed. And the handcuffs come out and you're led away immediately. But the next day, something, something unexpected happens. Something incredible happens. It's a presidential pardon and you're simply free to go. You've been declared guilty no more. And I want you to hold on to the thought of, can you even imagine how this would impact your life? Can you imagine the new sense of purpose that you might have? How much more you might enjoy every moment you have with family and probably how determined you would be to avoid anything that could put you back into that situation. Now, I acknowledge it's probably a silly way to imagine Paul's appeal here, but I, I wonder if it might prove helpful as we try to understand our passage today. So um, hold on to it for a moment, okay? Because I'll circle back around to it. Hold on to that feeling that you've been liberated from a life sentence and you just have, you've been given a chance to do it all over again. I want to take a second to set the scene. We'll be in Romans chapter 12 today, um, and we've not been in Romans 12. We've been in Hebrews, so this is a standalone. So just a little bit of context, I think, will be helpful. Um, Paul writes this letter to Christians living in Rome, and Rome would have been a deeply pagan culture. This should remind us in many ways of Hebrews. We had Jewish and Gentile believers living in close fellowship. Um, certainly the followers of Christ would have been tempted by the passions of the flesh. They would be tempted to indulge in the ways of the world that were around them. And it seems like there was some fighting amongst themselves. And Paul writes to them to make a very broad argument. He lays the foundation of justification by faith and faith alone. And we don't have time, but of course, if we did have time and we look back to the first 
11 chapters of the book of Romans, we would see a vast, expansive proclamation of God's mercy. Mercy to both Jew and to Gentile. We'd see the effective call of salvation to both. We would see that through the disobedience of one man, through the disobedience of Adam, that death came to all men. And then grace came through the second Adam. We'd see a verse that says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. And toward the end of those first 11 chapters, 9 through 11, God's mercy to all people would be on full display, the grafting in of the Gentile and the pruning off of the Jew who do not believe. And then he arrives at chapter 12, and it's, a, it's kind of an inflection point in the book. It's a turning point in the book. He says, therefore, and whenever you see it, you got to go back and you got to look and try to understand what he is connecting you to. And sometimes, um, therefore, connects you to just a couple of verses leading up to it. But actually here, Paul has the entire argument, his entire argument up to this point. The first 11 uh, chapters of the book in mind, um, and I listened to somebody who said, you know, we catch a, a therefore if it's maybe a couple of verses, but in this case, because it's 11 chapters, therefore doesn't do it justice, it actually should be a there five. And that is not mine, I promise you. But that will be the only thing you take away from this morning. I have confidence in that, right? There five, there four. Um, and, and so um, he explains um, what he does. He explains how believers should live in light of his argument in our passage today. He looks back on it and he says, we have received abundant mercies from God and are justified by faith and faith alone. And so I want to actually read our passage here. Um, it's Romans 12, just two verses, one and two. Um, if you're new here, we use the ESV translation. So if you've got a device, um, select that one. And let me read Romans 12, one and two. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, uh, in, in studying for this, commentators routinely, regularly use two words. They use the word indicative and imperative when they're describing this section here. Indicative and imperative describe really most of the book of Romans. And the indicatives here that we are to see, that is the what the gospel is in chapters 1 through 11. The indicatives, the certainty and the actuality of the gospel lead to the imperatives, that is what we are to do as a result in chapters 12 through the end, 12 through 16. The indicatives inform the imperatives, and today, this passage is the turning point. The indicatives inform the imperatives. And I'm going to take you back. Do you remember uh, geometry in high school? For some of us, that's back a bit. I happen to enjoy it. Um, maybe not all of you did, but do you remember proofs? 
Remember that concept? I see Jared shaking his head, right? I remember them. Um, And poor Chris, he has two right-brained pastors at his side. Both Ed and I have degrees in engineering, and Ed can't come to a significant decision without having a decision matrix laying it all out. And I certainly don't mind throwing around a spreadsheet or two. And poor Chris, I I think he, he thinks we're absolutely out of our minds. But I think the concept here of a proof can be really helpful. If you remember those, you're given a statement. And the idea is that you have to prove something through a series of steps using reason. Now, let me start with a simple one. If we have to prove that we have an angle, and I'll call it angle A, and angle A is 90 degrees, and we have to prove that angle A is a right angle. It's simple, right? We go from what we know, angle A is 90 degrees, and we know that a right angle is 90 degrees, therefore, angle A is a right angle. It's straightforward. You go from what you know to prove something you don't using logic. And Paul says here that we're given mercy upon mercy, and he's built a case for it in the first 11 chapters, and then he says, therefore, this must be true. If you've been shown mercy, not given punishment that you deserve for sin, then you must live in light of that reality. If this is true, and it is, then this also must be true. If we have been blessed with God's bountiful mercy, then we ought to live rightly in light of that, shouldn't we? If we have been spared from the reality of hell, that is eternal separation from God, then we must... In fact, we must live in light of that every single day. It shows us that there are two ways we can and should do that in the passage. And those two ways are loosely going to make up our our outline here. And Paul doesn't mince words. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. In other translations, you might see appeal, urge, plead. And this language would have implied authority. So as one authorized to instruct, Paul says, listen and obey. And so if you're a note taker, I've just got two points, and these should be the most obvious two points, maybe in the history of sermons here at Oaks Church, but they are this. Point number one, sacrificial lives, and point number two, renewed minds. Point number one, sacrificial lives, and point number two, renewed minds. And what I want to do is present these points and try to explain the meaning, and it won't take long, and then I want to go back and try to explain what it means for us. But let me read that first verse again. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, we can catch a little bit of this here, but Paul is using um, sacrificial language. And this would have been really clearly understood by Christians in Rome, by the original audience. And at the time, Christianity, not Judaism, Christianity would have looked very strange. It would have been very hard for the Romans to understand. Because it was a religion without a temple, without a priesthood, without worship and sacrifice in that physical sense that they would have imagined. Because even pagan Romans at the time would have sacrificed to their gods. They would have done so in temples. 
And so throughout the New Testament, we see lots of language about temple, about priesthood, about sacrifice being used, but interestingly, it's all used apart from the physical places and people that would typically have been associated with sacrifice. This new covenant language is of a new kind of sacrifice. No longer were or are God's people called to present animal sacrifices in the temple with an earthly priest interceding on our behalf. Instead, the whole orientation of our lives is to be a living sacrifice. The whole orientation of our lives is to be a living sacrifice. The once and for all payment for sin has been made and now we must offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And Paul goes on to say that a life of sacrifice actually can be, it can be holy and pleasing to God. It can be your worship, he says. Your own lives form a living sacrifice. Your lives are your worship of God. One of the commentators I I used uh, in studying for this, Thomas Schreiner said this, he said, you are now alive to God in Christ Jesus. And those who enjoy new resurrection life are called to give their lives as a sacrifice whose aroma is pleasing to the Lord. He says, for doing so is eminently reasonable. Since God has been so merciful to us, to dedicate one's life to him is actually the height of folly and irrationality. And I hope you're beginning to catch a theme here too because it's, it's all because of God's mercy, because of God's mercy, because of God's mercy. These commands are all because of or in response to God's incredible mercy in our lives. And how do we look at this challenge, this challenge to the original audience and apply it to our lives today, I think is the question that we should ask. And, and it's, it presents a shift from sacrifice for sin to presenting bodies as living sacrifices. And I think it would have been difficult to understand then. And I wonder how we might consider this paradigm shift today. What sort of reordering of our lives should occur as to bring most pleasure to God? forming our worship with him. And I'm going to leave you with that question, and I will come back to it, I promise. So the first point was sacrificial lives. The second point is renewed minds. Renewed minds. And Paul gives us another, he gives another present tense imperative, a command. He says, do this, be transformed, and do it by the renewing of your mind. There's a direct link, um, I believe, between what we think and what we do. Thus, the mind and body can't and shouldn't be separated here. We shouldn't see these as totally separate commands. Paul says, here's what I want you to do when he looks back to the first point, which is offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he says, here's how you're to do it. And the way you're to do it is by the renewing of your mind. You Christians are to live lives that are not conformed to the world around you. And you do this by the transformation of your minds. Because the transformation of your mind will lead to an ability to test and discern what God's will is. Yes, without a doubt, 
God wants our bodies. He wants our outward obedience, our submission to him, but he also wants our minds and our hearts. He wants our gaze fixed on him, not just an outward compliance. And if we go back to the Old Testament, Micah and Amos deal very clearly with this. They deal with physical bodily worship done apart from inward worship. Inward worship of heart and mind. They deal with separating those out. In fact, the words of the Lord spoken through the prophet Micah in Micah 5 say this. The Lord says, I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I think that's a little bit shocking, if I'm being honest. It's shocking. If our worship is marked by apathy, by just going through the motions, then the reality that we see here is that it actually isn't worship at all. And empty worship is dealt with very harshly. Now I want to turn um, for a moment here, I want to turn from what we see in the text to what we do with it. What does it actually mean for us? And I think in some ways these two commands can appear out of order. It can actually seem like maybe our minds must be renewed first and then our bodies and lives offered up in worship, but I think actually instead we should see these as more of a circle. They kind of lead to one another, going round and round. The call is to obey, to give your life as a sacrifice, to orient your life around the good news that in Christ you have been spared from eternal punishment for your sin. And even if you don't necessarily desire to, and I'm using air quotes, to give up your Sunday mornings to be here, and even if you don't want to join a community group or you recognize and you know how difficult it is to fellowship with people you wouldn't naturally gravitate towards, even if it's hard to do the work of making disciples, which we are all called to do, if you faithfully follow the Lord in his commands, you will surround yourself with people who will encourage you to walk with him. They'll encourage you in righteousness and they're going to challenge you to pursue and love the Lord. And I think if you do those things, your mind will be transformed by the gospel. You'll desire the things of the Lord. Your mind will be transformed by your study of the word and prayer. And you will desire to be more like Christ. You'll desire to be in fellowship with other believers, worshiping together. And by the power of the Spirit, and to be clear, right, by the power of the Spirit alone, that cycle will continue lives lived in sacrifice, minds not conformed to the things of this world, but instead conform to the things of God. Maybe on the other side, maybe we need to start with setting our minds. Maybe you need to start with setting your minds on the things of God. And then watching as the Spirit does the work within you. Renewing your mind, giving you an ability to know and understand what pleases God. That is, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, which is exactly what we see here in the passage. You will know what is good and what is pleasing to him. 
And our worship of God isn't limited to our minds, our thoughts, and desires. It's closely linked. It's very closely linked with what we actually do. God desires the whole body to be devoted to him in reverent worship, and the two can't be separated. It's simply not possible to dedicate the mind to God, but neglect to give the body over in worship as well. And this death to ourselves is what Paul calls, he calls it holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. The, the reorienting, the restructuring, the reordering, the rearranging of our lives here flows from the transformation of our minds. And if we physically reorder our lives, we surround our thing, ourselves with these things and the, the people that lead us to further worship. If we actually use discernment regarding what we see and what we consume, it leads to a mind conformed to the things of God. And Paul says that in, in Romans 8, earlier in the book, he says, the mind set on the flesh is actually hostile toward God. So we are called, we are called to dwell on that which is good and pleasing to him. We're called to not fix our gaze, the gaze of our hearts and the things of the world, the things that lead to sin, the things that will ultimately pass away. Instead, we're called to set our minds on the things of God. So I think, and I'd like to ask you to consider today whether you need to take serious steps do you need to remove yourself from the passions and pleasures of this world? Is that a step you need to take? Step that will, steps that will keep you from setting your minds on the things of the flesh. Because in light of Paul's instructions to transform your minds, I think sacrificing your bodies can be seen as encircling yourself with people who will encourage you, people who will point you to God challenge you when you're in sin and people that will desire that you would walk with the Lord. I think this can include things like gathering together as we're doing here this morning. It can be, it can be being involved and in plugging into a community group. It absolutely includes giving yourself to making disciples, gospeling one another, encouraging one another. And when we fail to do this, when we surround ourselves with the world that doesn't seek to humbly submit to a loving savior, how hard is it to do the God glorifying thing when everyone around you is living a life in sacrifice to something completely different? They're living lives that worship something else. How hard is it to trust God and walk in his ways when people most often, that you most often spend time with are either completely indifferent to the instructions of the gospel or maybe they're, they're actually antagonistic. And I think there's room here. I don't want to take it too far. I'm not suggesting that someone who goes to a, uh, an unreached people group and is completely alone and isolated is not somehow walking in the will of the Lord. I'm just looking, I think, at general principles here of applying this passage to our lives and living in wisdom as a result of it. And I want to be honest about my own heart for a moment because this one is really, I mean, it's hard for me. I certainly desire the things of this world. I desire to have fun. I love to be outside, whether it's playing basketball with Jack in the uh, driveway or golfing or riding my bike. 
And these aren't bad things, but if I'm being honest, again, I often desire them more than I should, more than I desire to seek the Lord. And as I was preparing um, for this sermon here this morning, the Lord certainly challenged me on this a bunch of times. I'd get discouraged. I would want to throw in the towel. I'd want to just go outside and do anything but prepare. And I would get frustrated that I couldn't just go do whatever I wanted, go wherever I wanted. Frustrated at the sacrifice that the Lord required of me to prepare for this. But the Lord was really gracious, and he reminded me over and over and over again through this passage that our lives as followers of Christ will necessarily look different because what we worship is different than what the watching world worships. Let me say that again. Our lives as followers of Christ will necessarily look different because what we worship is different than what the watching world worships. And in his grace, those desires began to fade as I got closer and closer to this morning. I began more and more to look forward to the studying of the word, anticipating the process of of actually preparing this sermon. And my encouragement there is, is not to lose heart. Don't lose heart. Do not lose heart because he will be faithful. Seek the Lord. He will surely reward your seeking him by giving you the desire to organize, orient, reorder your life in a way that pleases him. So get out of bed in the morning, open your Bibles, immerse yourselves in God's word, turn your hearts to him in prayer, cast your cares on him, serve one another and watch as he begins to transform your mind and the desire that you have to desiring things that please him. And if you struggle with one, maybe you do the other. Struggle to read the word and submit your mind to the Lord? Well, try giving yourself over to gospel-centered community and watch as he faithfully transforms your mind. Is it hard maybe to devote yourself to the studying of the word and meditating on the things of God? Try asking a brother or sister to meet regularly with you and to do just that, to stir up within you a love for the Lord and the things of him. Maybe on the other side, you can't break free from a pattern of sin. It just continues to be a struggle to orient your life around the fact that you belong to God. Try giving yourself over to seeking him in prayer and the study of his word and watch him be faithful to shift the desires of your heart. Watch him transform you into his likeness. And I think a bit of maybe good news here is that even the Apostle Paul struggled with these patterns of sin. In chapter 7, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And he goes on to say, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So be encouraged there. The goal is not perfection. That's actually impossible for us. And the good news is that perfection has actually been granted to us in Christ. That is, in trusting Christ, we've been given his righteousness. We've been declared guiltless before the Father. We've been made right with him. So the goal isn't perfection. The goal is transformation, sanctification, the process of becoming like Christ. 
looking more and more like him every day, ordering our lives in a way that glorifies him in humble worship. And Paul goes on later in 12, he says, here are the things that mark believers. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, because we make up one body with many members, and we aren't all the same, but you're to serve the church with your gifts. In serving, teaching, exhorting, generosity, acts of mercy, love to one another, he says, rejoice in tribulation, be fervent in prayer, do all of this with cheerfulness. And maybe you sit here this morning and you're actually not, you're really just not that convicted to live a life that is transformed. Maybe there's no desire inside you to live a life that looks any different than the world that's out there around us. You're perfectly content to go on living just like everyone around you. Blending in with the idol worship that's so pervasive in our culture, you seek out every opportunity, every excuse you can make to avoid fellowshipping together. You bury yourself in the pursuits of the world. You might consider prayerfully asking the Lord to show you this morning where you are in outright rebellion against him. Because that's just what that is. And we were all born in rebellion against him. But God created us to know and love him, to live in perfect obedience, as I mentioned, to live in perfect obedience to his command, but we sin constantly, even on good days. We're unable to fix this in ourselves, and the penalty for that is eternal separation from God. And without any help, without anything changing, when we die, we will live forever apart from God in agony. And I think that's a hard one to fully comprehend, but God's word could not be any more clear about it. It's crystal clear. This isn't just a life sentence we're talking about. That's an eternal sentence without any hope of parole. And that's where I'll bring it back around to the beginning. It's only because of God's mercy that we have any hope. For he sent his only son to pay the penalty for our sins. And all we have to do is call on him, confess that you're sinful, turn to him, and he promises to be faithful. He will forgive you of your sin and he will cleanse you from unrighteousness. And he will send his spirit to dwell within those of you who trust in him. To help you reorder your life. Helping you, helping us to be a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to him. Because that is our spiritual worship. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, thank you for the challenge, and I pray that it would be challenging to all of the hearts in this room, Lord, as it was to mine. Father, help it to challenge us to examine carefully the ways that we order our lives, examine what we do with our time, examine what we give our minds to, and would we give ourselves instead over to the transformation of our minds that our lives would be a living sacrifice to you. Thank you for the joy that we have in gathering here this morning. Thank you for the fellowship that we get to enjoy, that for so many in this room, this is a regular habit, and we are in a pattern of giving of ourselves to you, of serving, of generosity, of care, of exhorting, of praying for one another, of preparing meals for one another, Lord. And I pray that this 
word this morning would only stir and encourage that in us even more. So Father, be glorified in our lives, be glorified in our worship of you as we get to stand and sing out together in praise of your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.